The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, Mike Santoli at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. David and Jim have the morning off. Holiday weekend, but not before we chop a little more wood. Debt ceiling deal reportedly gets a bit closer. City upping U.S. equities. And April eco data runs hot, including core PCE. Two-year 4.6 is the highest since March. Our roadmap begins with the macro outlook. Several retailers with results. We'll get the latest reads on the consumer and inflationary headwinds. Plus, D.C.'s race to avoid default. Negotiators reportedly closing in on a deal. And Ford's surprise EV partnership striking a deal, a charging deal with Tesla. Let's begin with the markets. The futures holding in there as the Dow has now suffered a five-day losing streak, closing below its 200-day moving average for the first time since late March. Mike, a conversation this morning definitely about uh, core PCE uh, spending. And uh, this idea that the recession calls may continue now to get pushed out. Yes. um, Pretty familiar theme for the last few months, which is the economy seems to be holding up better than at least a lot of the forecasts anticipated. And inflation is a little bit stickier. So the processes we thought that were going to be underway with the Fed tightening this much uh, and having the lagged effects of that come through have not really have as much of a bite as as we might have thought. Now, where does that leave us? I mean, the market in general, the typical stock's been struggling, pricing in some degree of slowdown. Earnings are flattening out, but maybe are, are done being revised lower for the moment. So you have this kind of caught in between uh, type of action outside, of course, of the big marquee uh, beloved mega cap growth stocks we keep talking about. I mean, everybody's pushing back against the notion that the market has been so resilient. Yeah. We get so many emails about this. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord, the top eight performing S&P 500 stocks account for 118% of year-to-date gains in the S&P 500. This has not been a broad rally. Well, this chart right here, I think Deutsche just weighed in a couple of moments ago. And Mike, you've been all over this yeah. for so long. But the, they're calling it the, the narrowest rally in a century by some metrics. Yeah, it depends how you slice it, which of the stocks you want to count in the anointed uh, bucket. But this is the equated S&P lagging and almost all of this underperformance having happened since SVB failed. That's the early March uh, divergence there. So you're talking about 10 percentage points. You know, it's interesting. uh, By other measures, this divergence is as wide as it's been since 1999 or early 2000, but also 1998. Okay, 1998 was not a mega top. It was a volatile year. You had some concerns about what the Fed was doing. You had a financial accident in Russia defaulting and everything else. And then it was a rush into the, quote, safe uh, mega caps that could that could weather things, plus a little bit of a tech bubble getting rolling as well as the Fed got easier than than expected. It's interesting, though, that the tech trade has held up so well, given the fact that yields have risen and now Fed expectations are changing. Is June live? Is July live? Yeah. Are they? We've had some hawkish Fed speak. We've had some hotter data, including the core PCE, which we know they monitor very closely. And yet, technology has held up yeah. well. Well, you, you, you know my take on that, Sarah, which is that <laughs> yields have not ever been the only reason that they, that they outperform or underperform. 
Uh, but I do think there's no doubt June's a live meeting, I think, at this point. I mean, you don't, not to say that it's a done deal, they're going to hike again. But at, knowing what we know right now, assuming there's a debt ceiling deal, um, I do think there's going to be a little bit. It's a judgment call at this point. It, it's kind of like a, exactly what you think the risk reward of a pause. But you know it's going to be characterized as a pause and not the end. Um, and we'll see if the market can handle that. You know, one of the reasons I thought that, that stocks could not fall apart when, you know, we get these added hikes uh, coming into expectations is that it's in a measured fashion. It's a, it's a 25 basis point move if we get it every six or seven weeks. It's because the economy is holding up better. So you have a little bit of a, of a fallback on that. We'll see if there's a limit to that. I mean, obviously, the bond market's really uh, kind of upside down with all the, the, uh, the bond, uh, the uh, debt ceiling issues. And, uh, and yeah, and, and Fed pricing getting changed. Uh, meantime, all of this leading city, at least, to upping uh, U.S. equities back to neutral uh, and their overweighting tech. Their basic point this morning is, look, the recessionary dynamics that we did expect are not coming together as quickly as we thought. At the same time, Europe now looking at one of its biggest leaders in recession in Germany. The China reopening hasn't happened. They had this whole, Sarah, U.S. is not exceptional thesis going, and they say there's some cracks developing in that. AI is a big crack developing in that because we've been the center of the action on that front. Just look at NVIDIA and Marvell Technologies this morning, which we'll talk about. But the surprise has been the stronger U.S. data and the weaker China data. That's been the surprise of the year. And, and even on weaker Europe, we kind of knew that the growth was weakening there. But the DAX, the German index, is near an all-time high. I think you're, you're still going to have people out there who say, these inflation indicators are lagging. And what's really happening on inflation is that it's coming down quickly. You look at the PPI, the wholesale number, as a leading indicator. That's all the way down into the 2% range in terms of growth. It was 11% yeah. this time last year. And then Costco. Did you hear what Costco said, the CFO on the earnings call? Listen to what they're saying now about inflation. Inflation continues to abate somewhat. You go back a year ago to the fourth quarter of 22 last summer. Uh, we had estimated the time that year-over-year year year inflation at the time was up 8%. And by Q1 and Q2, it was down to 6 and 7%, and then 5 and 6%. And this quarter, we're estimating that year-over-year year inflation in the 3 to 4% range. We continue to see improvements in many items, notably food items like nuts, eggs, and meat. It's coming down fast. Uh, that, that's what Costco is saying. And they're, they're talking about weakness and some of the big ticket discretionary items. It was a rare, I mean, it was a miss for Costco, actually, yeah. top and bottom line. Stock's down just a little bit because they give a lot of real-time indications on their monthly sales. But weakness in inflation. And, and that, you know, that will continue to be a debate if the Fed does go again in June, whether they're making a mistake and increasing the chances for a hard landing. I think that debate is still very much front and center. For sure. Regional banks are still down 50% off their highs, even though they've stabilized, and that's good news. Home furnishings, 33% off their highs. Paper and packaging, 30% off the highs. So, yeah, the tech trade's been resilient. Yeah. But there are a lot of other cyclical groups that are way in bear market. I mean, look, look at the small caps. Yeah, for sure. Small caps are in bear market. There's no doubt about it. And um, I actually think that's why the market is taking a slightly hotter than anticipated inflation number in stride so far this morning <laughs> because point. nobody really thinks it's a trend changer. It's a stutter step in the improvement on the inflation front. And, yes, you have all those things about you have to make a call about credit contraction and if that's going to be uh, a dyma dynamic. And you mentioned small caps, Sarah, and mid caps or even just the equal weighted to the average stock in the S&P. 
when people say this has not been a resilient market, it's actually been pricing in more weakness. It's it also saying, well, then it's not really as overvalued a market as you as you keep saying as well, because the equal weighted S and P is at like 14 and a half times earnings. Mid caps are under 13. Maybe they belong there. Maybe you know earnings aren't going to come through. Maybe the economy's got more uh, to pay back. But it's you know you can kind of complain about one thing or the other, not both at the same time. That makes sense. If you're looking for, though, you know, on the credit contraction side, which is continuing to be the dovish argument for the Fed that they should see the damage, we did get some new Fed lending yeah, data out yeah. from banks and, and, and continues to move in the right direction, which is lower emergency lending from the banks, from the Fed. In fact, we're now at the lowest level since March, which is when we saw the initial collapse. It's not like there's no stress. Certainly there's less borrowing from the discount window, but the bank term funding program, which was the new facility the Fed set up, still $91.9 billion, and that was up on the week. So it's, it's still out there. It's percolating, but it is moving down. Let's turn now to the latest on the debt ceiling, because a lot of this will depend on whether we get a deal. We've got under a week to go before the U.S. government faces a potential default, according to the Treasury's estimate of the X date. Here's Speaker McCarthy last night on the talks. We'll continue working hard, and I think we'll, we've got time. We're going to get this done. Have you well, talked to Senator McConnell? Look, there is no agreement, all right? Uh, we know where our differences lie. We've worked throughout the day, and we'll continue to work to try to be able to solve the problem. But there is no agreement. Joining us now, PIMCO's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell. So, Libby, what are you guys thinking there's a deal that, that will come as soon as today? Yeah, Sarah, we've been constructive on a deal materializing, not likely until the 11th hour, but still materializing for, for not only weeks, but months now. Um, we do think that the, the details of the contours of a deal are being filled in uh, and may be announced by end of today, maybe by tomorrow. Um, but we think negotiators are are very close. Um, in fact, it seems like there's been quite a bit of big, uh, breakthrough over the last 24 hours on the spending component. And that, as you know, was sort of the big the big obstacle. I think that the fact that they've basically now reached an agreement on that, it sort of unlocks everything else, and this deal uh, uh, sort of falls into place, you know, quite you know, quite in a quite straightforward way. So, what what does the spending picture look like then, and and how's that going to impact the economy? Yeah, so I actually think there's there's quite a lot for the markets to cheer here uh, if this deal kind of materializes the way that we think it will. Uh, for one, it looks like the debt ceiling will be extended for two, at least two years. But of course, uh, with extraordinary measures, that likely pushes that back even further. So this could be something that the market does not have to deal with uh, for, say, two and a half, almost three years, again, if it sort of comes to fruition the way we anticipate it. And then from a spending perspective, um, there's a little for each party to like here. Uh, so on the non-defense side, this is where de Republicans have really been focused. They wanted to see cuts. It lo will look like cuts, but sort of nominally probably won't be, but more like a freeze in terms of spending year over year. And then defense, you're actually going to see a little bit of an increase. So that is also something that I think the markets will welcome. Because if you remember in the 2011 debt ceiling uh, standoff, there were actually sort of deep cuts that were agreed to uh, in that resolution. We are not going to see that here. So again, uh, if this sort of falls into place the way that we anticipate it, we think that there'll be you know several things for the market to cheer here and welcome. Libby, a good discussion this morning on Squawk about what the market has to fear if we get a deal in the way of austerity and, and lower government contribution to GDP and slower growth in the next couple of years. How real do you think those fears are? 
Yeah, Carla, that's exactly what I'm speaking to. I actually think that uh, while there were those fears, and of course the Republican kind of opening salvo in the with the House bill did actually would you know would have materialized into in pretty significant cuts. We do not anticipate that being in the final bill here. Basically, year over year flat spending uh, on the non-defense side, and then maybe even an increase on the defense side. Now, this is all nominal numbers, not real numbers. So if inflation is still continuing to running hot, then you could see maybe a little bit of an kind of incremental dip, but nothing that we think will be a significant headwind here. And of course, this will be a two-year deal. So this sort of gets us, I guess, for the, from the market's perspective, really gets you into 2025, when of course, we could have completely different leadership uh, in Washington, both from a congressional perspective, but also, of course, in the White House. In the shorter term, Libby, are you able to speak at all to PIMCO's view of the other fear about getting it to a debt agreement, which is this potential rush of issuance by the Treasury of Treasury bills to try to rebuild its cash balance uh, and this idea out there that the market is going to maybe struggle to absorb that at a, at a tolerable uh, you know, yield level uh, or something like that, or, or money market fund just going to be there to take it all? Yeah, of course. I mean, yes. You know, the Treasury has been putting liquidity into the market uh, because of this, because of the the, the debt ceiling de uh, deadline, and because they're trying to manage their cash balances. Of course, they will be then taking liquidity out uh, in a pretty significant way. So this is something that we are talking to our clients about. We do think there might be some tactical opportunities here. Well, you know, folks might be focusing on the equity market, and of course, we really haven't seen a lot of volatility in the equity market around the debt ceiling. We have seen it, as you all know. Uh, in the front end of the curve in terms of risk aversion around kind of the the T-bills that are maturing in that sort of debt ceiling corridor. So, yes, this is going to be a dynamic. We'll still continue to see distortions in this, uh, in this market. Again, I think for active managers, we think that could actually be an opportunity for us. Uh, but, yes, I think that, that that's, a, that's a very uh, a good point to, to raise. Hey, finally, Libby, um, Wally Adeyamo of uh, Treasury was on CNN this morning and said, I think, obviously, that the 14th Amendment can't solve our problems now. But would you expect that if we get a deal and we don't have to worry about this for a couple of years, that the White House will look to settle this over the long term uh, legally with, with then uh, a contest about that? Yeah, Carl, it's a great question. And honestly, one of the que questions that we're hearing a lot from our from our clients, um, both about the 14th Amendment, about the potential of issuing a platinum, a trillion platinum coin, uh, uh, the zero coupon bonds, or these other tricks, if you will, to avoid uh, the, having Congress address the debt ceiling. And honestly, to use trader term, we would absolutely fade that. We do not think that this administration in particular was ever really seriously considering these these tools. Of course, there's some legal uh, uncertainty, but I think that you just go back to who President Biden is. He is a legislator through and through. He realizes that this is actually Congress's statutory duty to raise the debt limit. And we don't think these were ever being seriously considered and honestly a little bit befuddled by the narrative in the marketplace because, you know, it doesn't seem like this was, a, you know, again, in serious contention or even on the table uh, with Treasury or the White House. Although I don't understand why they didn't just raise the debt ceiling when they had the chance before the new Congress came in. Yes, sir. That is. And that is honestly, there will be, there has already been, as you know, They've a lot of money taking themselves. Monday morning quarterbacking, yeah, in terms of what yeah. the Democrats could have done. But, you know, the reality is what is, is what is. And, and so now we're kind of looking forward. But yet there will be a lot of finger pointing, I believe, uh, in when, you know, when all is, this is all sure. settled. Yeah. And spinning, too. Libby, thank you very much for joining Thanks us so today. Libby Cantrell from PIMCO.
Still to come this morning, we'll touch NVIDIA, obviously, trying to climb again following yesterday's monster gains. My favorite comes from Mike Zaccardi today that uh, it gained more than three, three M's <laughs> yesterday uh, in value. Nine M's, yeah. <laughs> Nine M. Take a look at the pre-market here as we try to get uh, to our three-day weekend. Back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. We are watching shares of NVIDIA here in the pre-market following its blowout quarter this week. Good data out of Bespoke revealing that the stock up more than 11,000% over the last 10 years. Obviously, this all comes after yesterday's monster move, like on the back of earnings. And now we wonder, is it expensive? Is it cheap if we're just getting started? Is it a bubble? You know, all these questions are out there. I mean, I think there's a few things you could lay out just as general principles, which is that Price momentum, fundamental momentum, narrative momentum are real phenomena in the market, and they're not something you should necessarily pick a fight with too lightly. The other thing about it being expensive and on the fundamental momentum side, 48 hours ago, NVIDIA was at 305. It was trading at 67 times consensus earnings for this year. Today, it's trading at 380 after yesterday's gain and is at 53 times current year earnings. So, you had such a step function change in what people think the near-term profitability is that it's hard to say that it was totally overdone. Also, at the peak, the, the, the valuation got toward where we were two years ago. In other words, it's not even carving out new ground. Yes, it is an aggregate market cap. It's way, way overheated in the short term. But um, what's interesting to me in terms of all the AI bubble talk is bubbles tend not to be narrow and localized and focused on these kind of contentions where they're kind of indiscriminate, a lot of also ran stocks. That's going to happen. Maybe it already is. Uh, but it's, it's still right now, I think, uh, it's very selective. Yeah. Um, I mean, yesterday, Morgan Stanley tried to argue that how, how durable is the guidance? That's right. And they, would, they argued that NVIDIA tends to be conservative on guidance. Now you got Marvell talking yeah. about a Kager that's going to run 100% next year on their AI revenue. So how many companies do start to... Uh, I don't know. No, exactly. Get a piece of it. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, uh, the way you would be skeptical about that is it's, there's this immediate rush by all companies, all players in this area to s- show that they're spending and taking seriously the opportunity or the risk, and they need to just throw money at the hardware. And that's what's going on. And whether it sort of leads to productivity gains, whether it leads to great business models down the road, we'll see about that later. But for now, they got to buy the stuff. The and o- everybody's budget's going up. The other thing, Mike, on the bubble talk is it's not like it's these small speculative stocks that are rallying on a fever. I mean, it's NVIDIA, one of the biggest stocks in the market. And you know who's not benefiting from this big surge is Kathy Wood, who has been all in on AI. Remember she was on here a few months ago and and I asked her why she was selling out of NVIDIA when she was so focused and so bullish on AI. Here's what she said. 
Why have you been getting out of NVIDIA? Because it's considered one of the biggest beneficiaries. You saw the enthusiasm for earnings yes. when they talked about the, the AI lead that they have. Yes, um, and we like NVIDIA. We think it's going to be a good stock. Uh, it's priced. It's, pr it's the check-the-box AI company, uh, and rightly so. We own it in other of our funds, ARKQ, uh, ARKW, uh, some of our Japanese mutual funds. So we do own it, but for our flagship fund, where we, we've consolidated towards our highest conviction names, part of that has to do with valuation. NVIDIA's valuation is very high. Not a great call. She was basically out of it for the ARK Innovation Fund yeah. by January and missed this entire year's run-up. Do you know what I think was the key part of her answer to you, Sarah, was that she called it the check-the-box play for AI. And if you are a self-styled, I buy disruption, we buy it early, we don't care about immediate profits, when you get a mega cap name that everybody loves the business, everybody kind of loves the story, and it doesn't seem like it's on the edge of disruption anymore, and now you have to worry about regular P.E. ratios and are you paying too much for it. Um, now, they stuck with Tesla all those years. Um, even as it got huge, but it was Tesla was never the acknowledged like yeah everyone bought into the to the to the story and, and they could always feel like the maverick and and the and the one that were pushing the uh, the edge and now Nvidia is kind of the incumbent in this particular area not not rationalizing no, no, it but it seems to me that's where it comes from mm. yeah it's just incredible how quickly that happens yeah uh, speaking of Tesla we are going to get to this news regarding Tesla and Ford uh, on that charging network what that means for the auto business ton of retailers we haven't touched on we got Costco but we'll get Gap. Big RH Ulta when we return. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Some of the pre-market gainers, you'll see Ford on there. and We'll talk about their deal with Tesla in a minute. Paramount's going to lead uh, on a couple of bits of news, including an upgrade over at Loop as they go back to hold. Opening bell coming up in a few moments. And don't forget, you can catch us anytime, anywhere. Just listen to and follow the Squawk on the Street opening bell podcast. As we count you down to the opening bell, one big mover today is going to be Gap. It's surging in the pre-market up almost 10%. This tells you nothing about the consumer and everything about companies' ability, abilities to cut costs right now. The whole story here was a surprise profit, one cent. That was about 13 cents better than Wall Street was expecting, and a big margin expansion. Gross margin expanded 560 basis points, 200 basis points better than what Wall Street was estimating. This is a company that is really hurting right now. Sales trends are pretty awful, and they are cutting to the bone. Between this year and last, we've learned they cut about 25% of headquarter roles, reducing all sorts of management layers. They did another layoff. Down 10, Athleta down 11% sales, and they don't have a permanent CEO. Right. I 
mean, you wonder if at some point the bull case that Athletic can be a big enough part of the company that it has value outside. But it's amazing. It's a $3 billion or maybe a little less than that market cap. The number of legacy chain retailers that are at or below $3 billion that we've heard from, uh, Urban, Abercrombie, American Eagle, Kohl's is under $2 billion. Uh, and they're all at these price-to-sales levels under 0 0.3, 0 0.4. And they're priced for permanent decline, and so now they're just trying to harvest the cash along the way. Let's get the opening bell here in the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. At the big board, it's Atmos Filtration Technologies, spinoff of Cummins, uh, celebrating an IPO today. We're going to talk to the CEO in a couple of hours. At the NASDAQ, a CLSQ, a developer of post-quantum technology hardware and software products, celebrating its listing. Uh, Sarah mentions Gap, where arguably the bar was a little low. Conversely, the bar for Ulta uh, might have been considered quite high, and that's why some of the tweaking of the uh, margin guidance has that name opening down 11, guys. Comstore sales up 9.3%, so still going strong. People are buying makeup. The mass market beauty, as they say, is actually doing better than Prestige, but they were comping 18% a year ago. So there's, there's clearly... Um, a moderation, I would say, in demand. A lot of people also focused on the 1.5% decrease in average ticket, which means that customers just aren't buying as much when they go. But there's an 11% increase in transaction. Things are healthy at Ulta. But to your point, Carl, the expectations were high. This was a stock at one point, Mike, that was yeah. hitting a record high every single day. The other thing I would just mention on the profitability front is they mentioned shrink. Yeah. theft, which is impacting the company in a bigger way than initially expected. They're trying to work with partnerships with other retailers and law enforcement to try to, to fix this, but it's impacting guidance, as we've seen from other retailers this cycle, yeah. like a Target, for instance, putting big numbers on how much that's hurting. Yeah, and just to the point of like where the hurdle was for Ulta relative to the others, I mean, uh, look, it's up, still 15% on a one-year basis. Uh, it trades at a kind of market multiple. But like two, two, over two times sales where all those other long-time chain retailers traded a fraction of their annual sales. So clearly it's, it's priced as a growth story. And you have a very small number of those in retail. You could talk about Alta, Tractor Supply, of course, TJX to some degree, and RH, uh, you know, depending on where we are in that rebuild cycle. Yeah. Uh, year to date, uh, at one point uh, in April, it was up 17 for the yeah. year. Now down seven, so yeah. all those year-to-date gains are wiped out. I do wonder, I mean, unless a retailer is willing to quantify the shrink impact, like Target did, is it like blaming the weather and the classic thing that we know retailers tend to do? Yeah, I mean, I do think that ultimately it does get quantified, you know, in a filing or something like that. I, they probably have to attribute it to something like that, write it off, uh, write off the inventory. But, no, it's tough to know exactly how much a part of the, the shortfall that is. Um, and, I mean, it's no doubt a chronic problem. Sometimes people just feel like it's cost of doing business, but it's become a little more extreme. More, it's become worse. Um, Simeon Siegel points out, the analyst from, from BMO, that this is the first time in about four years that management only reiterated full-year earnings guidance for Ulta. They're, we're used to raising, they're used to raising guidance, at least investors are, just because it's been such a strong category. Well, and we, one final note on some of these uh, tailwinds in terms of freight costs. Um, S&P had a great chart yesterday. It's not just that inventories have come down, but the, what's left, the turnover in that inventory is also falling. They're not able to get the mix out as quickly as they did before. And then Costco, we, we mentioned it, but they're now out of that emergency shipping operation where we know when times were tight, they had to take matters into their own hands. 
earnings. There's just no need to do that anymore. And that was what accounted for the big miss on the earnings number, which is why I think the street is forgiving them, because ultimately it's a good thing that we're moving into more normal freight conditions. And this has been a theme. Gap brought it up. Costco brought it up. Freight costs coming down, that certainly increases margins. On Costco, just we, we hit the numbers before. Comps 0.3%, 2.8% was expected, so that was a miss. E-commerce uh, comp store sales were down 10%, and they blamed that on lack of demand for big-ticket discretionary items, electronics, jewelry, home furnishings. We've seen that across the board with some of these these companies, Home Depot and Lowe's, both taking down like guidance. For sure. And, and Target has been quite weak, actually, underperforming a bit in the last couple of days. That actually could be a little bit because of uh, the pushback to some of their changes in their uh, merchandising with regard to the Pride merchandise. I think, actually, there's a, kind of a social campaign against that company. But that's that aside. It obviously is also in the tough area of retail. By the way, though, we were talking about the PCE inflation number, the actual PCE personal consumption numbers, a huge upside beat, 0.8% last month. Uh, it was like, you know, almost double the, the forecast growth. A lot of it, though, skewed toward auto and auto related. So it seems as if, yeah, there were goods uh, that were being purchased, but it, it, was, it was shifting over toward cars as uh, more inventory there came, came around. So not a bad story in terms of uh, the consumer in general uh, did outpace personal income but definitely been, uh, been, been shifting in a different direction. Also some manufacturing barometers with the early durable goods numbers that came out. Very yeah. strong on the headline number, but if you take out transportation, the move was only down 0.2% compared to down 0.1% expectation. So that's a good proxy also for sort of CapEx sure. demand from from companies, on, on big, from people, on big ticket items. Yeah, and next week, of course, uh, heavy on the labor data, as we'll get to ADP jolts and the jobs number. RH, um, we're used to quite a bit of volatility and certainly a lot of color from Gary Friedman. Uh, they do raise the full year revenue guide, but the quarter revenue uh, is a little bit uh, lower. Uh, he does expect luxury to remain challenged. Interestingly, Guggenheim names it uh, a best idea today, 325. But here's what Friedman said last night on the call. I think what we've seen is in, you know, uh, an increasing headwind uh, from a demand point of view and, uh, you know, a slowing of our cycling through our discontinued inventory, you know, as we've, um, uh, you know, increased our markdowns, it's um, going to cost us more to cycle through the product. Uh, so we're going to have to take deeper markdowns than we thought to, you know, because of the greater headwinds uh, that have developed. Doesn't sound inflationary, Mike. No, no, not at all. At least not at that at that level. And for you know any category that thrived in lockdown. I mean, that's really been the rule that's been uh, that's applied to a lot of this. One reason the analysts are so bullish is because the the pipeline, the development pipeline of stores, and the way they talk about these stores and they build out these stores with the restaurants and the hospitality and the luxury, and that's what dominated the call. Usually, Gary Friedman talks about. Powell and Yellen and has a lot to say about the rate picture. There was actually very little of that and much more on the excitement around what they're doing and the opening in the UK, for instance, which is what some of the bullish analyst takes are focusing on because those are the drivers of yeah, growth. Yeah, I think actually the, the Guggenheim title note is uh, off to England or something right. like that, right? Because that's, yeah. that's where the resilience that's what, is. And, and that's what the story was about. Also, the buybacks people like and maybe this stock, I don't know, Mike, is there the stock has been beat up and, it, and a bit, yeah, a little bit with the with the whole decline in home furnishings. The fact that they have been so reluctant to bring down price and now they are yeah. talking about doing more promotions, 
perhaps the street is actually taking comfort in that. I think the street certainly likes the idea that they can elevate into being one of those resilient luxury players, obviously on a lesser level than some of the big European luxury brands. But it just it just always seems like, you know, there's more money in that tier that that they might be able to tap into. We'll see if it does play out, though. It's, a, it's aggressive. I mean, it, he's not one to, to, you know, be timid about this device. Ton of news in the auto space. Uh, Tesla now on the cusp of overtaking the Toyota Corolla as the world's uh, number one selling model. Hyundai and LG going to open a very large uh, EV battery plant in Georgia. And then, of course, uh, that Twitter space is yesterday between Elon Musk and Jim Farley, in which uh, Ford will get access to Tesla's network of chargers uh, by sometime next year. Take a listen to that. The idea is that, like, we, we don't want the Tesla supercharger network to be like a walled, gar- a walled garden, you know, to, we want it to be something that is supportive of um, electrification and, and uh, sustainable transport in general. Meantime, Musk is almost back to taking the uh, world's number one richest, uh, back a little closing the gap between him and Arnaud. Yeah. Um following that race very closely. Ford shares are up, by the way, 2.3% on the news. Some of the analysts out early saying it's a win-win for both Ford and Tesla, but a compa- but actually uh, could hurt some of the EV charging stocks right. that are competing with a Tesla. It was for a long time um, certainly a secondary or tertiary part of the Tesla bull case, but this idea that they would become kind of an industry standard and have that ability to be a vendor uh, to the to the whole industry uh, on the charging side and just technology, even some software. It's interesting to see the whole market. You know, all the all, the sectors are higher today. Consumer discretionary is leading. Yeah. Tesla and Ford are a big part of that story. The cruise lines are doing well again as well. What's what's weaker today are staples and utilities, which are the more defensive parts of Rate the market. Rate sensitive, yeah. Rate sensitive have also done a little better so far this utilities year. Utilities have struggled recently, but staples yeah, staples have been up a yeah. bunch. Staples, no, they're down 2% this year. Yeah, that's, that's no, utilities are down 8% this year, and, and I think that's just a, kind of a sort of the pure uh, rate play. It is, uh, it is interesting. I mean, we continue to have this sort of net defensive investor posture combined with an economy that isn't failing as quickly as people uh, maybe were positioned for, and we get churn uh, around those, uh, those themes. You know, the Bank of America, their weekly flow report showed Year-to-date inflows into cash from investors, $750 billion. Um, that's basically just sort of taking it out of, uh, of other financial assets. And equity flows are basically flat. So flat probably makes sense. After the, you had massive inflows for t- a couple of years, everyone ended up with overloaded with stocks. But that's been normalizing, essentially. And so you don't have people feeling like they're overextended, even when you have you know, five stocks that are going to the moon and piling on hundreds of billions of market cap over the course of weeks. Workday is probably worth touching on. Uh, EPS upside, again, uh, beating on operating margins. That's really becoming a theme in this particular round of earnings. They do raise the low end of the full year uh, sub-revenue guide. This stock's added 100 bucks almost, uh, Mike, since November. Yeah. That's a 52-week high. Yeah, and um, that's part of a little bit of, um, I don't know if you call it rediscovery of some of the sort of cloud application software, business-to-business software stocks that were you know, huge favorites, again, in 2021, uh, all got reset lower. And now, you know, the ones that are entrenched and have the business uh, are, are doing better. So uh, they're all still look expensive. People will tell you you can't just use a straight 
PE for, for software, but, uh, but definitely a part of the market's getting slowly dragged up with some more people looking for ideas within tech outside of the obvious ones. Speaking of, Marvell Technology is the NVIDIA of today. The stock is up about 22% right now after the semiconductor company talked up the increased demand related to AI. Was, that, was this a surprise that they were, that they were so out front? When it comes to the AI technology, look at look at the reaction. I don't know they if it's a surprise that they were a participant, but it, it feels like everybody was caught flat-footed by the speed and magnitude of the investment that's already reached the vendors um, in, 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 in pretty much every area. And, of course, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a winners versus losers dynamic because PC-related Intel struggled for two days. It's seen as a net loser on this. In fact, interestingly, uh, I think it was Bernstein's uh, note this morning off the desk saying that Amazon was down yesterday, in part because it's seen as a non-winner in this AI investment cycle. Also, Snowflake's uh, numbers dragging the, uh, yeah. the, the expectations down. It's there. interesting. There was some conversation yesterday that the rush to AI spend is so large, it will crowd out yeah. uh, traditional networking uh, spending, DRAM. People had questions, well, how does Micron fare in that environment? Micron's gonna, we're to, we might be talking about a fresh year high in Micron soon. It's true, yeah. I mean, it just, I guess nobody quite knows how fast the pie is getting bigger and what it's drawing from. Um, but but I, I, again, I, I find it remarkable that um, with all the people covering NVIDIA trying to get an edge on the stock, you can have a revenue guide at that degree. 50% above consensus. It, it just got past everybody. And now it didn't get past the market, arguably, because the stock just wouldn't quit on the way in. But in terms of people publishing estimates and models, it wasn't there. Well, and Marvel, too. So what, what the surprise was they said they're already making money off of AI. They make the chips used in the in the data centers. AI revenue of $200 million already in the most fiscal year, but they expect that AI-related revenue to double to around $400 million in the current fiscal year, rise to $800 million in the next fiscal year. That's what has everyone so excited today. Uh, meantime, really quick touch on some travel names. It is Memorial Day weekend. Phil LeBeau was talking about uh, travel in, in Squawk. I think TSA Thursday a new pandemic, post-pandemic high yeah. in screen passengers. And today, Morgan Stanley uh, does uh, reiterate, I think, their, their uh, buy, you know, yeah, reiterate overweight on American Express. And that comes the day after we had the action in the cruise lines and the story in the journal about CCL and others. Look, it's just a question for these consumer discretionary stocks, which is how much spending power does the consumer have left and at these very high prices. And it, and it keeps yeah. getting pushed out. I will say, and there's still a lot more pent-up demand than anyone expected from COVID, Mike, but they haven't acted, acted that well because, you know, when the consumer pulls back and you start to price in recession, this isn't where you want to be. I mean, just look at the airlines. I mean, they are essentially implying that, you know, these are good times, running full planes, it's not going to, you can't extrapolate. At least that's the way, the, it's way close to, uh, you know, the lows of 2020 than to the highs of of 2021 in those stocks, the airline index. So that just tells you the market's unwilling to say this is going to last. Well, and, and the, what's different uh, is that this time, I mean, in a normal cycle, they'd be adding routes, exactly, yeah. uh, adding capacity. They can't because yep. of the, either the equipment or the pilots. Same in hotels. There's not going to be some rush to new development. Um, so you might argue that the, at least the rates. They're maxed out. Yeah. yeah. And, and durable, right? Or sticky? That's remember what Solomon Solomon told us. Hard and sticky. That's <laughs> his inflationary and outlook. Harder. Yeah, it's you, the, you get, uh, the lollipop economy. But then you know you have some people say, look, a one, a one tenth higher than expected PCE deflator today should not make a Fed rate hike. 
in June. Right. But it does add no, to continuing that. evidence yeah. that, you know, the inflation is here and that things are a little bit stronger than the market could have expected. I just think it's a what tells the story of the week again, Mike, is that the Dow is down for the week. The S&P is a little bit weaker for the week. And the Nasdaq is is higher. Right. And that's been this continued divergence here in the market with that speaks to big cap tech and the A.I. theme and yeah. which. Which makes me wonder if, all right, let's say we do another round trip to 4,200 and we have the same conversation again about yep. where the bull ceiling is. Uh, is it any different with at least uh, a, a printed NVIDIA guide? Does that make this particular round trip different? Um, I think at the index level it might. To me, the bigger question is if we find ourselves at 4,200 and you start to pull back and most stocks have been struggling already, is the, is the average stock, is most of the market going to be kind of oversold with a little bit of a pullback in the index before we have to have the big flush? Or is it showing that there's really uh, weakness and nobody wants to buy these things and they have to come lower to refresh demand? So you could play it either way. In history, it's gone both ways, so it's hard to know uh, how exactly it's going to turn. Uh, that said, uh, decent action on this Friday, uh, 41, almost back to 41.80. Let's check bonds as well. Two-year did get the, about to 4.61, as we said, highest since March, 10-year around 3.82. We're not done with data either. Umich coming up at the top of the hour. Don't go away. Ford and Tesla announcing a surprise partnership during a Twitter Spaces event, of course, with Elon Musk and Ford CEO Jim Farley. Our Philibo joins us now on more film what it means for both companies. Sarah, this is really a win-win for both Ford and Tesla. And here are the particulars of this agreement between the two automakers. Ford EV owners will get access starting early next year to Tesla superchargers in North America, about 12,000, a little over 12,000 of them. Also, and this may be more important, Ford's second-generation electric vehicles, which start coming out around 2025, they will be equipped with the Tesla standard, the NACS charging standard. Why did Ford make this deal? Here's CEO Jim Farley this morning on Squawk Box. We really like the Tesla standard from a customer standpoint. When you look at how easy it is to plug in, if you drop the core, the, the Tesla system is more robust. Um, the other standard is great, and we'll have adapters for that. But, but we also really love the locations. In a nutshell, he's saying that Tesla has built a better mousetrap when it comes to public charging stations and the supercharger network. Ted, you take a look at where Ford is in terms of its EV market share, and this is after the first quarter. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is about 7% of the vehicles sold in the first quarter were EVs. So it's still a very small part overall for the industry of the market. Having said that, when you look at what's uh, happening here, Ford is basically saying to their customers, we want you to have as many areas to charge up in the future. About 50% of the superchargers will ultimately be available. And from Tesla's standpoint, guys, remember, they've already told the Biden administration they will open up their network to other vehicles and in order to access the $7.5 billion in federal funds for adding more public chargers. And think about this. They now get Ford owners in their ecosystem. Maybe not completely, but a little bit. And that is going to be critical as they continue to grow their brand over the next several years. What are the economics of something like this, whether it's, you know, Ford having to buy certain components to ha have adaptability or to Tesla directly? Right. Well, it, it, at least initially, there is going to have to be an adapter for the current generation of Ford vehicles so that the 
protocol that's used on Ford vehicles right now and almost everybody else's vehicles, the CCS standard, can work in the superchargers, which have the NACS standard. But down the road, Mike, here's the other question. We don't know what the pricing is going to be. However, you have to wonder how many people might ultimately, they'll probably do it through a Ford app, the vast majority of them, but how many people may also say, you know what, I'm going to access the Tesla app, Carl, and I'll pay $12.99 a month, and it's just easier that way. It's, and, and, and other automakers are going to have to think about this. Do they want to continue or do they want to make a deal with uh, Tesla? And should there be one national standard instead of what we have right now? Phil can cover travel, weekend, uh, industry dynamics, wherever he is. Phil, thank you. Uh, Phil the boat. By you the bet. way, if you missed uh, Faber's full sit-down with Musk, uh, don't miss a special encore. Monday on CNBC begins at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be right back. We're always lucky to get Santoli for a full hour, and I know we're going to see you later on tonight, right? Yeah, 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, we're going to have a special, Taking Stock. Uh, finish up the week this way, see if we maybe even have a debt ceiling deal to talk about. you got to just beat the Taylor Swift traffic into Jersey. <laughs> yeah, or join it, you know? <laughs> join it. We'll see. Why yeah, not? I'd rather Sounds be like they're having fun out there session. already. Yeah. Of course. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.